It's not easy in any country. We're talking about transitions, not just in energy systems, transitions in transport, transitions in our financial systems, so that we understand the risk of being invested in technologies and companies which are making their money today with carbon emissions. And we're talking about transformations in our food systems so that we can produce food sustainably, but it'd be healthy food. All of this is changing all at the same time. And so I think for many political systems and just the management of government, capacity is a real issue. You are listening to the Siemens Energy Podcast Series. The energy sector is undergoing an unprecedented transformation, presenting both challenges and opportunities. The demand for energy is increasing worldwide. And at the same time, we must combat the effects of climate change and reduce CO2 emissions. On each episode, we bring you conversations with some of the world's cutting-edge thought leaders in energy and related subjects. Our goal is to help you understand energy, the challenges we face today, and what the future holds. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources. Now, here's your moderator, Amy Pemple. Today, we welcome Rachel Kite, Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University and Climate Change Advisor to the UN Secretary General. Welcome, Rachel, and thanks for joining us today. Looking back at COP26, where do you believe the responsibility for mitigating climate change lies amidst different countries? Hi, it's nice to be here. So everybody has a responsibility to steward the earth, provide prosperity for your people without making it more difficult down the line. So now that we understand that we are in an emergency and we we have to decarbonize rapidly, in order to get to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels of, of heating, everybody has to do their part. There's no no longer a situation where we'll go after you or one country needs to do this and I can just sit here and do nothing. However, the bulk of the responsibility lies with those who have historically, through their emissions, got us to this, this point, this crisis. And so that's the industrialized countries. And And also now the very fast-growing, large, middle-income countries who are on a pathway, if they don't correct for it, which is going to endanger their own people and the planet. But the historic responsibility is with those countries that benefited from industrial revolutions and, and over the last, just even the last 30 to 40 years, have continued to pump emissions into the atmosphere. So this means that everybody has to do the best that they can. Um... But there is an extraordinary responsibility on industrialized countries to rapidly decarbonize. But it's a huge opportunity, too. And also, it's a financial responsibility of these industrialized countries as well to help the underdeveloped countries in making the transition. As I heard, there's you mentioned something in a recent article about $100 billion of climate financing to push that forward. Is that relevant here? Yeah, so let's break it down a little bit. First of all, the access to the technologies that would allow countries to grow greener is important. So there's no point saying everybody has to decarbonize and then holding on to the technologies and the finance that would make that possible. You're just cutting off your nose to spite your face. And so there's a business case for investing in a green transition in energy, in transport, in urbanization, in developing countries, if you're a developed country. But there's also a moral responsibility, which is we accept that industrialized countries got us to this point, And it is accepted within the international climate negotiations, within the Paris Agreement and the agreements before then. That historic responsibility should translate into 
financial aid to countries who need to be able to adapt to climate change, build their resilience, but also to grow uh, greener and cleaner. And so that's where that number 100 billion comes from. That 100 billion was a promise made more than a decade ago and updated in Paris of a transfer of public funds from developed countries to developing countries to help. But the green transition is going to cost way more than 100 billion. And that's where private markets and where other public investments need to be made and where countries have to use their own domestic resources to invest in their own futures. But that 100 billion is a totemic political promise and acceptance of solidarity and the need for the developed to help the developing. Speaking of politics, as residing now in the U.S., we have quite a divisive political arena at the moment. Many believe the U.S. is well-meaning in its commitment to address climate change, but can't follow through the Biden initiative that Build Back Better. What is your feeling on that? I think it's clear that the Biden administration, when they assumed power just over a year ago right now, wanted to turn the page on the Trump administration's withdrawal from the Paris Agreement and wanted to signal that they understood that there was a climate crisis, understood that they had a responsibility to their own people to really meet a net zero target, so net zero emissions by 2050. They came out with their target and then they've been working to work, working on the implementation of that target. So a 52% commitment to, commit, cut in emissions by 2030. But where's the plan to do that? And that plan is both the infrastructure bill, but very importantly, components of the Build Back Better bill. And so the rest of the world listens to the w- words of President Biden and his envoy, former senator and uh, Secretary, State Department Secretary uh, John Kerry. They listen to the extraordinary array of cabinet members who are extremely knowledgeable and understand these issues from Janet Yellen to John Granholm at Energy through to Gina McCarthy in the White House, the coordination czar of, of action on climate. So they hear all these words, they know these people, they trust them, they understand that they understand. But then they look at Congress and they see that these bills can't get through because of a bipartisan game of chicken, really, because it is very clear that good jobs, it's very clear that are going to come from clean energy, clean transport, retrofitting buildings, building new buildings, which are cool when we need to be cool and warm when we need to be warm without using lots of harmful energy that the good jobs are going to come in transforming food systems and how we manage the land, right? So it's very extraordinary, I think, for people outside the United States to see that the the idea of cutting off your nose to spite your face, of not pursuing that which is good and competitive, is, is a political platform for at least one party. And I think most people scratch their heads because they also watch the fires, the floods, the hurricanes, the hundreds of billions of dollars of losses every year in the United States. And they're like, what do they not get? And that brings me to outside of the US, particularly in Europe. A lot of countries have set these ambitious climate goals. Do you think they're really attainable or do you think they might be a little impractical? But how do we meet those goals or will we meet those goals? So that's a great question because the first thing to do is have an agreement that there's a problem and have an agreement that we're going to attack the problem. And in the United States, we seem to be mired in this constant federal discussion around that, whereas at the state and city level, lots of people are just getting on with very innovative things. In the rest of the world, that sort of bipart- that sort of partisan bickering is not so present over the actual agreement that we need to act. 
where the disagreement is then is maybe on the policy approaches to be taken. And what we can see is a wrestling with, is the cost of inaction more than the cost of action? So most, almost every economist and scientists and others will tell you that the cost of inaction is going to be far higher than the cost of action. Just not doing anything is going to uh, mean that we're going to have um, greater and greater losses from extreme weather events. We're going to have to turn a sharper corner, which is going to be more dangerous, more difficult than if we start doing the right things now. But faced with an opportunity in the United Kingdom, we're looking at the need to move everybody off gas boilers onto heat pumps. And that's going to cost something in the short run. But what it's going to cost and the subsidies to households to be able to do that is nothing in comparison what it's going to cost if we don't make the change. And so this wrestling around policy and the short termism of politics and the short termism of financial rewards versus the medium to long term trajectories that we have to take into account. I think this is where it gets difficult. And so it's not easy in any country. We're talking about transitions, not just in our energy systems, transitions in transport, transitions in our financial systems, so that we understand the risk of being invested in, in, in technologies and companies which are making their money today with carbon emissions. And we're talking about transformations in our food systems so that we can produce food sustainably, but it'd be healthy food. All of this is changing all at the same time. And so I think for many political systems, and just the management of government uh, capacity is a real issue. So you brought something up earlier about society and societal change. That Do you think that there is now a, a confluence of everyone believing in climate change, knowing it's going to happen, taking it seriously, and not looking for just the immediate financial gain from it, but looking at it long term? I think that's when I've talked to some of my friends and family, they're like, I know there's climate change, but I'm not too worried about it. It's many years away. I think now people are starting to recognize that we've got to act now and business and governments and society have to pull together. Do you agree? Yeah, I think something has really changed in the last couple of years. It used to be you could plausibly say, oh, it's some, climate change is something that's happening to somebody else over there. But almost in every corner of the world now, that's not the case. Who knew that fires however they started, and we don't know yet, would blaze through the suburbs of Boulder County and rent destruction to a thousand houses and goodness knows how many people. Thankfully, nobody died. We, we, that was just un- inconceivable. You know, fires are things that happen up in the mountains or fires are things that happen somewhere else. The kinds of arid conditions, the heat, the, the dryness, means that the whole of that part of, of Colorado now has to think differently about its existence. So I think you can't say it's somebody else, some, somewhere else anymore. And I think young people especially Generation Z or Z, they're like, okay, this is the mess that everybody's leaving me with. I'm just going to have to manage my way through this. So they're extremely pragmatic and focused about it. It's, it's not, are we having a discussion about whether this is happening or not? They're not even really interested in discussion about who caused it. It's like, this is going to be my life. And then when you get to the, the students that I'm, I'm engaged with, graduate students in their late 20s, early 30s, I, I think that they can at times be overwhelmed by understanding exactly how much we have got to do and in what a short period of time we're going to do it. But they're determined to be part of the solution. The, the dangerous thing is, is my generation and above who have been, you know, deleterious. We have not taken care of our watch. And honestly, we need to get out of the way if we're not going to let young people take care of their watch. I completely agree. And 
Time Magazine recently named you one of the 15 women leading in climate change. And they also said you are a go-to expert on the transition from fossil fuels. And I think that's something that many people don't really grasp, that you cannot flip a switch and go to solar and wind. It just doesn't happen that way. That we, It's a transition period. And different countries are on a different trajectory in terms of transitioning from fossil fuels. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the at the very core of the whole climate change discussion is the fact that we have to stop emitting carbon dioxide and other gases which cause uh, global warming or global heating. So we have to stop emissions. Now, we can stop emissions by stopping burning fossil fuels, and that's the transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy, so solar and wind and geothermal and other uh, technologies which will be developed, right? Like hydrogen. Yeah, but, but there's all kinds of colors of hydrogen, and I'll come on to that. So the second thing then is, but you can't go cold turkey overnight. You've got to build those. You've got to build that renewable energy. You've got to build the systems and the grids that can absorb it. You've got to take everything that runs on gas and make it run on, or, or coal, and make it run on electricity. So we've seen this extraordinary speed of development of electric vehicles. And that, so thus you can see systems just moving from the weight on one foot to put the weight on the other. We've also then, while we continue to wean ourselves off fossil fuels, there are still emissions coming from fossil fuels in power generation. So we will have to stop those emissions going into the atmosphere, which means that we're either going to have to cap or use or store the emissions at the source of their generation, or in some cases, we are going to have to find ways to suck those emissions back out of the atmosphere if we can't do it at the point source. So we, it is a transition. But the question is that if we have to be not emitting in the future, then building things that continue to emit makes very little sense. And so you want to see research and development and investment in what will be greener. That doesn't mean to say there won't be any fossil fuels over the next few decades. It doesn't mean to say that some countries will need more fossil fuels for longer than others. But it does mean that to continue to invest in new fossil fuel power generation poses an extraordinary risk, not only to the planet, but a financial risk and a political risk over time, because those will be stranded assets. Switching gears a little, what is the voluntary carbon market? Can you explain that in a little detail, please? As we think about this transition, then we have got parts of the world where we have where they have the capacity to generate carbon credits. So they have they are not using up all of their sort of carbon capacity, as it were. Maybe it's a highly forested country that has very few emissions itself, and so those forests sequester emissions out of the atmosphere, and so they could generate a credit. At the same time, you've maybe got um, energy companies or manufacturing companies or countries who are emitting more than they can balance out with uh, their own natural uh, ability or with their own policies. And so they are in need of credits. Now, this is, in many parts of the world, there are carbon markets that are regulated. So in the European Union, in China, and in, in South Africa, Chile, Canada, we have carbon markets where you can trade credits from those who have got too, too many or have excess and those who need more. But uh, in many parts of the world, there is no uh, carbon pricing, no effective carbon pricing, there's no effective carbon market. But that doesn't mean to say that we there aren't companies that would like to um, 
buy credits because as they enact their transition, they, they need some way to get there. They can't get there on their own. So we have companies who buy offsets because they invest in a forest in another country or in another part of the country. And therefore they say, okay, my emissions are being offset by the natural capability of this carbon sink over here. Now, over the last 20 to 30 years, this has existed in the voluntary market, international environment organizations and companies have had individual deals with individual communities or individual forests. But there's been lots of abuse and what what people call greenwashing. And there have been lots of examples of where it can't really be proved that the exchange of carbon credits actually, that the money went to where it was supposed to go or that the carbon was actually offset. However, when everybody is saying that they want to get to net zero, there is an extraordinary opportunity for many companies to now transfer their resources into places that really need resources to be able to adapt. And so there's more and more interest now in voluntary carbon markets. So this is the idea that a company has committed to net zero, but it needs some credits to be able to get there. And that there is a country that desperately needs investment in its um, in, in its uh, own adaptations. And so could those two entities do a trade? And could that be something which actually helps us reach emissions reduction? And could it be something that helps countries attract the finances they need for their own their own adaptation? Optimists believe that market could be 95 to $100 trillion within eight years. Wow. Skeptics believe that there is a real danger that lots of money will flow into the pockets of middlemen or country, companies will make claims that can't be uh, verified or validated and that we will just see a market completely um, separated from the underlying purpose of the market, which must be to reduce emissions and to see financial flows go to those who need it most. Uh, I, I work with a, a number of colleagues on trying to write the guidance for those claims that countries make, companies make. And over the next, the course of 2022, you're going to see a number of different initiatives try to come out with the rules for a voluntary carbon market. And then let's see whether we can. And if we can, let's see whether companies will abide by them. Another term you've used that I had was not familiar with, maybe others are, green wishing, not green washing, but green wishing. Yeah, I can't claim credit for coining that, but I think it, what it does is explain something very important at the moment, which is there are companies that egregiously greenwash, which, which, is, which means that they are doing something which they must know doesn't stack up. If you go and buy a carbon credit for a Siberian forest that burnt down three years ago, somebody's selling you something, right? So we, <laughs> there is plenty of that going on. A bigger problem is companies that want to be able to meet a net zero target that wants to be on the right side of history, but um, face some very difficult trade-offs. There are no rules in place. There's no guidance. There is no regulation. And so they make best efforts. Um, and also companies that maybe are doing the right thing in one part of the company, but in any other part of the company are still doing the wrong thing. So there are, for example, financial institutions who may set up a net zero fund but the rest of the financial institution is still investing in coal stocks. So I think it, it's because we're in a transition, we, we, we see companies trying to do the right thing or beginning to do the right thing or testing the right thing and then having to bring the rest of the company with them. So there is a degree of green wishing going on, right? I want to be on the right side of history. And I'm just not quite sure how quickly I've got to get there. Okay. Net zero by 2050. Attainable? Mm -hmm. 
or not? Yes, it's increasingly difficult. Increasingly, every day that we don't act is a day where we're just storing up more for ourselves to do and probably more expense in order to be able to do it. But it's too early to say that it can't be done. I think what's really difficult is the extraordinary amount of cuts that we need to, cuts in carbon emissions that we need by 2030. This isn't a problem where we can keep pushing it off down into the next decade, into the next decade. We have to act now. And the world is distracted. It's knocked sideways by a pandemic. We are suffering from populism and isolationism in a number of key countries. Even though the Biden administration came back, honestly, the US seems to be on a knife edge and everybody's watching knows that and could flip back into less than multilateral stance. We obviously are looking at a world where the energy transition underway means that we have energy price spikes in Europe and, and other parts of the world. And it's very easy for those in the fossil fuel industry to say that's because of renewable energy or because of the energy transition. It's got nothing to do with it. It's about geopolitics and about our lack of investment in storage and many other things. So transitions are never linear. They want two steps forward, one step back. So you need political determination, you need political farsightedness. So yes, it's not impossible to get there, but it requires a collective spirit and determination, which we don't see every day. So here's a question we ask most of our guests, and I'm very curious as to what you will say to this. What is one opinion you have regarding the energy transition that many would disagree with, or climate change for that matter? I think on the energy transition, there uh, there are still vested interests that try to trade off energy poverty and emissions reduction. And they're saying, oh, gosh, isn't it terrible that so many people don't have energy? Oh, we have to get them the energy that we have available to us now. We should give them fossil fuels. They used to say it about coal. Coal's on the way out. So now they say it about gas. The gas infrastructure that they think is there is not there. The people who don't have access to energy today live in rural communities and they live in shanty towns on the edge of growing urban areas in Africa and South Asia and small pockets in other parts of the world. These people have never been the focus of the attention of the energy infrastructure of the fossil fuel era over the last 50 years, and they're not the attention now. They often aren't a big voting block, for example. So the idea that the fossil fuel industry is going to run to the rescue of the 700 million people who don't have access to energy today is preposterous. And so I don't believe that there's a trade-off between getting people clean energy, affordable energy, reliable energy, and moving in in a revolution towards renewable energy. In actual fact, I think renewable energy, because it can be delivered in a distributed way, is the answer to many people's prayers. This has been very interesting, and I thank you so much for your time, Rachel. If our listeners want to find you on social media, I'm assuming you have a Twitter account. Could you share that with us? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter um, at rkite365. I'm also on Instagram, but my commentary is mainly on Twitter. The Instagram uh, handle is the same, at rkite365. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel. Amy, thank you, and take care. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at Siemens-Energy.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Energy is providing this podcast as a public service. 
Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Siemens Energy. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own, and their appearances on this program do not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Siemens Energy employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Energy or any of its officials.